Moments of failure in our lives are moments we don't like to think about, nor do we like to talk about them. We'd rather move quickly past them uh, so as not to prolong the pain. Yet it's in our moments of failure that God's faithfulness can most readily be seen. It's in those places of pain that God's promises can be most powerfully realized. My sophomore year in college was a painful one. I've spoken a bit about it before. I felt like a failure. The foundation that I had trusted on for years was crumbling beneath my feet. A dating relationship that was not at all healthy ended. It was a grace to me in hindsight. It was painful in the moment. My academic performance was far from stellar. My hope to be an impactful football player on the football team was dissolving. I felt like a failure. I was lost. Yet it was in that place of failure that I most readily saw God's faithfulness. My younger sister, Heidi, she attended the same school that I went to. I was a sophomore. She was a freshman. We spent hours talking in the library when I should have been studying. She's hearing me out. She's listening to my question. She's pointing me to Jesus, showing me who he is and what he could do in my life, encouraging me to trust in him. I got connected with a, a small group, a campus ministry called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, where for the first time I was studying the Bible in depth. And at the end of that sophomore year, my life was changed. I went to a retreat, studied the gospel of Mark all week long, and encountered the risen Christ through his word. So in a year of what I would catalog as failure, God showed up most supremely with his faithfulness. And so be careful moving past those places of pain because you might miss the promise of the Lord. Be careful skirting too quickly around these, these times of failure because it's there that God shows his faithfulness. What have been those places of pain, those moments of failure in your own life? And as you reflect on them in hindsight, how have you seen God at work maturing you, restoring you, encouraging you, sustaining you? Can you see the faithfulness of God through your moments of failure? Brothers and sisters, this is the character of God. He is faithful in the midst of our failure. And that's what we want to argue with you, convince you of. He is faithful in the midst of our failure. Let's explore this truth in the Bible from Genesis chapter 3 as we continue our series that we've entitled God the Creator and God the Redeemer. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to be reading verses 8 through 24. You can find that on page 3 in the Bibles we've provided on your chairs. Genesis 3. I'll read verses 8 through 24. And if you're here today, as always, we love to give free Bibles away. So if you need one or you have a friend who needs one, there are hardback black Bibles in the lobby, the bookshelf closest to the men's restroom. Feel free to take one of those uh, if you need it. Genesis chapter 3, uh, verses 8 through 24. This is the aftermath of the fall of Adam and Eve. We looked at that last week. This is the continued aftermath, the results of their sin. 
And they, that is Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat, and all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Last Sunday, we covered Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And in that, we see the, the detailing of the fall of Adam and Eve. We see this onslaught of temptation that the serpent, who is Satan embodied in reptile flesh, the serpent presents to Eve. She's tempted. She's deceived. She takes of the fruit and eats it, offers some to her husband who is with her the whole time. He takes and eats. Collectively, they rebel against the good command of God not to eat of the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we saw that and the beginning of the aftermath. What did Adam and Eve do upon eating of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Immediately they felt shame and unworthiness and they stitched together fig leaves which they scrounge up from the garden because they're ashamed to view one another in their nakedness. Genesis 3, 8 through 24 
continues the aftermath of the failure in the garden, the sin, the rebellion. It, it just is a 16 verses of aftermath, the result of sin. And in the aftermath, we see a powerful message shining through. And that message is God is faithful despite Adam and Eve's failure. God is faithful despite Adam and Eve's failure. So that's the aim of this sermon, is to behold how God is faithful despite our failure. And more specifically, we'll see how sin brings shame and strife, but God brings promise and provision. That's how he shows his faithfulness in the midst of our failure. We see sin brings shame and strife, but God brings promise and provision. So we'll organize our time uh, in these 16 verses by walking through three movements, three, three big movements in the passage. Shame and blame, verses 8 through 13. Curses and promise, verses 14 through 19. And then provision and separation, verses 20 through 24. Shame and blame, curses and promise, provision and separation. That's a, that's a roadmap for this morning. So first, shame and blame, verses 8 through 13. We read of this continued aftermath, this awful aftermath of Adam and Eve's sin in verses 8 and following. They hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the breezy time of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Consider in this verse what has been lost. It's tragic. Consider what has been lost. The personal presence of the Lord once enjoyed is now feared. What a loss. The personal, intimate, tender relationship with the Lord once enjoyed, now feared. They're hiding. Adam and Eve once strolled with the Lord in the garden. Now they're hiding from him. The God-human relationship has been broken. That's what sin does. It severs relationship between humans and God. They're estranged. And notice that the, the trees which once were to be enjoyed eaten from and under, now are used as objects of obstruction to hide from the Lord. So the people creation, the people nature relationship is, is distorted as well. And as Adam and Eve hide, God pursues them. And specifically, he initiates conversation with Adam. Notice what he says in verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? That second person pronoun, singular pronoun, not where are y'all, where are you, Adam? It's singular. What's going on here? God is holding Adam accountable as a leader in the marriage. He created him as head, equal in value, equal in dignity, different in role. Adam had a role to lead in the relationship. But as we saw last week, he was passive. He abdicated that leadership role, let his wife take the onslaught of temptation, and he sat back silently. He's being held accountable, though. The Lord God goes to the man first. Where are you, Adam? Adam had failed in his leadership role. He failed 
as head. And this question, where are you, is not simply a geographical question. It's a theological question. The Lord God knows exactly where Adam is, where he's hiding. This is a theological question. Adam, where are you spiritually? Where is your heart in relation to me? For the hiding that you are now doing is indicative of the separation between you and me. It's a theological evaluation. It's a theological inquiry. Where are you spiritually? Where is your heart in relation to me? But don't miss this. God is pursuing Adam in his sin. God is initiating conversation with Adam in the midst of his sin and shame. Well, Adam responds in verse 10. Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Sin breeds shame. It's a historical reality. We see it at first. Sin continues to breed shame. Men and women hide in their sin. Children hide in their sin. Sin breeds shame. We saw this last week in Genesis 3, verse 7. Adam and Eve cover themselves with those fig leaves. They sense their unworthiness. Sin breeds shame on the human-to-human -human level. Sin also brings shame on the human-to-God level. That's what we see here explicitly in verse 10. As a result of their sin, Adam and Eve are stricken with a sense of their unworthiness. It is the end of their innocence that they had maintained through their obedience they're stricken now with this awful sense of unworthiness. And all they can do is to cover up from one another and to hide behind trees from the Lord God who's walking through the garden. It's the end of innocence that was maintained by obedience. They sense this haunting feeling of unworthiness. Adam tells God, I heard the sound of you and I was afraid. You see what has been lost. Fear displaces fellowship. Fear displaces fellowship. Fear of God displaces fellowship with God. This is the tragic nature of sin. We become estranged from our creator, the very one who made us and wired us to worship him, create us to have fellowship with him, close relationship with him. Now we're fearful and we're running from him. Sin severs relationship with God. Well, God presses further in verse 11. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And then shame gives way to blame. In verses 12 and 13. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Do you see what's happening here? It's the chain reaction of finger pointing. Adam first points to God, then he points to Eve. Eve then points to the serpent. It's the chain reaction of finger pointing or the blame game. The woman whom you gave to be with me, Adam blames God, that precious gift. Adam blames God and then blames his wife. She gave me fruit and I ate. Eve then points to the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. It's the blame game. This is a typical Thursday morning at the Helsing household. 
Thursdays and Fridays, I'm on my own. Laura goes to work early, and so I am tasked with all three kids, almost nine, now six, and one and a half, to get them ready, myself ready, and somehow get the dog out to go to the bathroom as well. It's overwhelming. It, it, it makes me nervous even talking about it, but I'm, I'm trying to do it. I'm trying to lead. I'm trying to take responsibility. And so as I'm brushing my teeth, inevitably I hear a thud in the kid's bedroom upstairs, and then suddenly a shriek and a cry, and I go up to see what the tumult is, and there it is. They're in tears, and Soren says, Cecile squeezed my head. And I said, Cecile, what did you do? He hit me in the head with a Nerf gun. They're not taking ownership. It's, it's the blame game. They're, they're pointing at one another instead of pointing to themselves. It's just the nature of sin. It's a typical Thursday morning. How do you respond when you're found out? Which direction do you point? Our fallen human nature is to not point to ourselves, but to point to other people. Not to take personal ownership of our sin. Not to take personal responsibility for our sin. Worse is when we point to God. Blame him for our sin. That's exactly what Adam does. The woman whom you gave to be with me. God, it's your fault. That precious, perfectly suited gift that God gave to Adam in Genesis 2. Now he's saying, Oh, if he hadn't have given her to me, I'd, I'd still be doing okay. No, you wouldn't have. He blames God, the gift giver. He's disgruntled with God. Notice that he at one time spoke poetry, singing poetry over how beautiful she was and how uniquely suited she was for him. Now he's disgruntled with God, pointing the finger at God. The woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit. God-human relationships broken. So is the human-human relationship broken. This is an all-out failure to take personal responsibility for sin and to confess it rightly before God. And it's just worth pausing and considering how do we respond when we are confronted in our sin? Where do we point? To others or to ourselves? And can we say with King David in Psalm 51... For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only, God, have I sinned. That's personal ownership. That's a right understanding of our sin, who we've offended. How do we respond when we're found out? May we confess, take ownership. And go to the one who can do something about it, as we will soon see. So sin breeds shame and blame. The second movement, curses and promise. After the chain reaction of finger pointing, God systematically speaks curses to the three parties involved in reverse order. So Adam blames God and he blames Eve. Eve then points to the serpent and then God directs his speech to the serpent and then to Eve to Adam. So it's kind of going back in, in reverse order. So the Lord says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this serpent-human relationship 
will be one of contempt hereafter. And this is not simply the, the common human aversion to snakes. By the way, if you ever want to see Laura shriek and cringe, just bring out a snake. We go every summer to a little lake in West Virginia, and one of our friends in the lake has an albino mini ball python. And the kids love to see that ball python wrap around. It's named a ball python because it, it coils up in a ball. And so it'll wrap around your arm. It, we'll put it on, our sh on, on the kid's shoulders. They love the snake. His name is Marv. Laura can't even go up to their front porch when that's happening. She cringes at Marv, the albino ball python. There's something more going on here than just an aversion to snakes. There's something theological going on here. A warfare, theological warfare between the seed of the woman and the serpent. This is what is known as the first proclamation of the gospel here in Genesis 3, 15. The enmity between the seed of the woman and the serpent. And the promise that the seed of the woman will crush the head, bruise the head of the serpent, yet the serpent will take its toll. The serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. This is the first proclamation or the proto-evangelium. The first preaching of the gospel in scripture. And it is beautiful. In the lineage of Eve, one will be born who will crush the head of the serpent. And all that the serpent represents. Sin and death, deception, it will be crushed. Yet, there will be a great cost. For the serpent shall bruise the heel of this offspring of the woman. Well, what is going on here? It's a glorious forecasting of the cross of Christ who will be born in the lineage of Eve and who die a substitutionary death on the cross in our place. He will die, be crushed for our iniquities. Satan will seem to have won in that moment. But little did Satan know it was defeat that served as the mechanism of salvation. For in Jesus being crushed for us, Satan's head's actually crushed. Jesus breaks the back of Satan through him being crushed on the cross. The counterintuitive conquering of Christ at the cross. That is what this points forward to. Jesus will have his heel bruised. He will endure cost, but he will crush Satan, sin, depth, deception at the cross. That's what this promise is embedded in your Bible in Genesis 3.15, the first proclamation of the gospel. Savor it, read it, believe it, trust in it. Friends, Christ is the only answer to the problem of our sin. And it's given in Genesis 3.15. He's the only answer. We will search the world to get out of our brokenness, but there's only one answer. Jesus Christ alone, the one who crushes the head of the serpent's. It's a glorious promise embedded in a series of curses. Well, the curses continue. Eve is next. Verse 16, to the woman, the Lord God says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. So the joy and beauty of motherhood is now tainted by pain and anguish in the bearing of children. Your desire shall be, be 
for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What does this mean? Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The curse here is marital strife. And if you've been married for any length of time, you know what this is all about. Your desire shall be for your husband, not necessarily a a, a physical or a sexual desire here. This word desire is used just a little bit further down in Genesis 4 verse 7, where Cain kills Abel. And the Lord says, sin is crouching at the door, Cain, like an animal ready to pounce, like a predator ready to pounce. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, Cain. So it's a wrong kind of desire, a desire to overtake. That's the desire embedded in the heart of wives towards their husband's leadership. To kick against the goads, to not be willing to be led, to resist your husband's leadership, to want to rule yourself, to impose your way, to not listen to a a, a husband's leadership flawed as it is. I understand that. It's a wrong kind of desire. And then Adam responds, the husband responds to this ruling desire, this inordinate desire with harsh leadership. He shall rule over you, a domineering, harsh, uncaring kind of leadership. And so it goes with marital strife. Husbands feel nagged at or manipulated or not not even listened to at all. And then they lose their bearings and respond harshly and uncaring or withdraw from their wives. So it goes the yuck and the guts of marriage. It's the curse of the fall right here in Genesis chapter three, a struggle for leadership in the home, the complementary relationship now distorted and damaged by sin. When you're looking at this curse in Genesis three, you have to have your finger in the New Testament. To Ephesians 5. I'm not going to turn there. I'm just going to give you a summary. Paul's instructions to husbands and wives in Ephesians 5 are the antidote to the distortion here in Genesis 3. Paul's instruction to husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 5 is the healing balm, the antidote to the strife between husbands and wives here in Genesis 3. What does Paul say? Wives, yield to your husbands as to the Lord. Wives, respect your husbands. Do the very thing that you're prone not to do given the fall. Yield to him as you do to the Lord. Ephesians 5, respect him. And then husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Not in a domineering way, not in a harsh way, not in an uncaring way. In a sacrificial way intimately acquainted with them, learning from them, caring for them, cherishing your wives as you cherish your own body, as you care for your own body. Paul is instructing Adam and Eve in the very ways of their brokenness in Genesis chapter 3. So as you read Genesis 3, keep your finger in Ephesians 5. It's the antidote to the curse in Genesis 3. Husbands, love your wives. Cherish her, be tender, don't withdraw. In your obedience 
You see, your obedience to Ephesians 5 is not dependent upon your wife's obedience. It doesn't matter how she responds to you. Tenderly love her, no matter what the response is. Wives, respect your husbands. Yield to them as to the Lord. They are flawed. They will make mistakes. If your husband's encouraging you to do something contrary to the word of the Lord, don't do it. Don't do it. That's where you draw the line. But as your husband's trying to lead, trying to initiate spiritually in the home, trying to lead in a, in a disciplinary way with your kids, whatever, whatever, encourage him. We're tender inside and need encouragement. And some of the worst things you can do is just be scathing or critical when we're trying to fumble around and lead in the home. It's hard. So you have a hugely important role to play. Just encourage, respect, encourage. Marital strife in Genesis 3 creates a longing for marital redemption in Ephesians 5. Next we see Adam's curse, verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of. Let me just pause there. This is not to say that a husband should never listen to the voice of his wife. If you're loving your wife sacrificially, you better be listening to her and understanding her and knowing where she's coming from. Otherwise, you're withdrawn and not in tune with your wife. You better be listening to her voice. But when her wife, when your wife's voice contradicts the voice of the Lord, that's a red flag. You ought not to do it. That's what Eve did. Adam bought into it. So it's, it's the listening to the voice of your wife when it's contrary to the voice of the Lord. Curses are ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall not eat bread. You shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. What's the curse here? Is work the curse? No. Work is a good gift from God. Given before the fall in Genesis 2. Gave to Adam and indirectly to Eve to work and to keep the garden. It was a good gift. Actually, a means of worshiping God is to do your work well. The futility of work is the result of the fall. The difficulty, the toil, the trial, that's the result of the fall. Futility in work. Sin brings futility to your work. A sense that it's never done, it can never satisfy you, and it's always difficult. I mean, just think about work in this world. There are moments of great satisfaction, don't get me wrong. Little glimmers of grace in the midst of a fallen world. We can, we can enjoy our work. I love my work. I love what God's called me to do. But it's never done. And I need to be cautious of trying to find my all in all in my work. That's, that's one of the kind of results of the fall, just trying to find everything in your work, find completion, fulfillment. It's not, it's not in there. It's not in there. Sin brings futility to our work. Notice the human creation relationship is broken. Adam, who once knew abundance in the garden from the fruit of the trees, now will struggle to eat of the fruit of the ground. The ground so fertile in Eden will be so hard and difficult to cultivate outside the garden. The human creation relationship is is broken. And we see in Romans 8, that creation longs for the redemption that is coming. 
in Christ in the new creation. Let me ask you about your work. Man or woman, do you see the futility, the difficulty of your work? Let me just encourage you, understand that what you're enduring is not unique to you. It's a result of the fall. Men and women have been toiling in their work since Genesis chapter 3. It's not unique to you. There might be some unique challenges that you're specifically facing, but it's not a new problem. Work hard unto the Lord, not unto men, for it is the Lord you're ultimately serving. Strive for excellence. Be an agent of grace in your workplace. But yes, it's going to be difficult. You're going to have difficult bosses, difficult employees. There are going to be times you're going to be disgruntled. Work heartily unto the Lord, not unto men, for it's the Lord Christ that you're ultimately serving, Colossians 3, and await the redemption of work in the new heavens and the new earth. We will be working in heaven. The end of Isaiah, this beautiful picture of the new heavens and new earth, there's, there's work there. there, there's meaningful labor, there, there's response. We will be working and we will be enjoying it and it will not be tainted by futility in the new heavens and the new earth. Long for that, wait for that. Let that reality empower you to work well now. Shame and blame, curses and promise, thirdly and finally, provision and separation. Provision and separation. Let's look together, verses 20. 20 and 21. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Eve gets a specific name. Earlier, Adam did name her woman, a general name, but here there's specificity to her name Eve, which means uh, mother of living, all living, which is a hopeful name given what God had just cursed Adam with. From dust you came and to dust you shall return. You're gonna die, Adam. Oh, but the name of your wife is a pointer of hope in the future. There is one coming that she will give life to in her lineage who will bring Life out of death. To point her to the gospel. One is coming in the lineage of this mother, of this Eve, who will bring life out of death, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we see God, a faithful provider, make garments for Adam and Eve to replace the fig leaves that they had sewed together on their own. God takes animal skins and clothes his people. Well, how did he do that? What did it cost to create the garments? It costs animals' lives. Animals had to die so that their hides could then cover Adam and Eve. It's a picture of atonement. Animals had to die to cover the shame-stricken bodies of Adam and Eve. And in the same way, it's a forecasting of Christ who will die to cover our sin-stricken souls. Animals had to die at this point in the garden to cover Adam and Eve. And it's a pointer of another atonement, another sacrifice that will come. Christ to die to cover our sin-stricken souls then we see this separation in verse 22, which is a means of grace. The Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out, and at the east of the garden, he, replaced, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way, the tree of life. They're banished from the garden. Yes, that is a harsh reality, but it's also a gracious reality. Because in their sinfulness, if they were to remain in the garden and eat of the tree of life, they are then locked in in perpetuity for all eternity to their state of sinfulness. And God loved them enough not to do that, so he cast them out of the garden. He will work a plan of redemption from Genesis 3 all the way through Revelation, such that at the end of the Revelation, once they're restored by the work of Christ, they can come back to the tree of life and have it. Their separation and expulsion now is a, is a grace to them so that they don't eat of the tree and get locked in in eternity in a state of sinfulness. It's a grace. This separation is a grace. That picture of the cherubim, which are the bodies of lions with wings and the face of a human with a spinning sword, is just a, it's a symbol of guarding and protection. You cannot come back in here. There's coming a day that you will but I have to work redemption first. Our failure is great, but friends, God's faithfulness is greater. Sin brings shame and strife, but God brings promise and provision over and over and over again. We're gonna sing a, a couple final songs. The final song is His Mercy Is More by Keith and Kristen Getty. In a moment, Daniel Lee's going to lead us in that. I just want to read these lyrics to you to see how his mercy is more. See, our failure is great, but God's faithfulness is greater. What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Our failure is great, but his faithfulness is greater. Do you believe that? Trust in Christ, it is true. It is true, let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness in the midst of our failure. This passage is sobering. Paradise lost, but hope is provided because you are faithful, because you are merciful, because you are good. Help us, O oh God, come to terms with our own sin, to take ownership of it, to go to you and to confess it, to see our need of redemption. Or may a passage like this drive us to you the one who provides the gospel, the good news that you have crushed the head of the serpent, sin and death and deception. You've crushed it in Christ. And we cling to Christ, find all of our hope in him now and forevermore. Amen.